evening. This is Lisa coming to you from the Eel, the Edwina Elder Library. And what this is, is a, it's a library in honor of our good friend, missionary, Sister Edwina Elder. She was um, a missionary to Pakistan and Africa, and she was just a great woman of God in the church there, Apostolic Faith Tabernacle in Hutchison, Kansas, where her son pastored. And um, her son was married to my mom's sister, my Aunt Sandy. So we're close in that way as well. But anyway, um, we are reviewing the Frank Bartleman's Azusa Street, an eyewitness account to the birth of the Pentecostal revival. This book, we are on chapter 5, The Wave Continues, page 117. Just about one week before I arrived home, Brother Durham began meetings at Old Azusa Mission. He was sent by the Lord from Chicago. The upper room mission refused him a hearing, so he went to Azusa Street. Brother Seymour was absent, having traveled east. Brother Durham started meetings, and the saints walked back to the old place and filled it again with the high praises of God. This was what the Lord witnessed to three of us while we are in prayer that more than a year before. God had gathered many of the old Azusa workers back to Los Angeles from many parts of the world, evidently for this. It was called by many the second shower of the latter rain, James 5 and 7. On Sunday, the place was crowded, and 500 were turned away. The people would not leave their seats between meetings for fear of losing them. With this, the bottom dropped out of the upper room mission overnight. The leader had abused his privilege and also the saints. He had failed God in other ways also. The Lord will spare any man or mission if there is repentance. We cannot persistently abuse our privileges, destroy the prophets of God, and finally get away with it. Great was the fall of the upper room mission. The leader had at one time been much used by God, but God had another place, another man, and another message ready. He never deserts his true flock. The cloud moved on and moved the saints with it. See Exodus 13, 21, 22. The fire began to fall at Old Azusa as at the beginning. I attended these meetings with great interest and joy. The Lord also blessed me much at 8th and Mabel, which was still running in spite of the outstanding meetings at Azusa. Then on May the 2nd, I went to Azusa Street and to everyone's surprise found the doors all locked with chain and padlock. Brother Seymour had hastened back from the east and with his trustees decided to lock Brother Durham out. It was his message they objected to but they locked God and the saints out from the old cradle of power also. In a few days, Brother Durham rented a large building at the corner of 7th and Los Angeles streets. A thousand people attended the meetings there on Sundays and about 400 on weeknights. Here the cloud rested and God's glory filled the place. Azusa became deserted. The Lord was with Brother Durham in great power, for God sets his zeal especially on present truth, 2 Peter 1 and 12, that needs to be established. He preached a gospel of salvation by faith and was used mightily to draw anew a clear line of demarcation between salvation by works and faith, between law and grace. This had become very much needed, and it is certain that such a revelation and reformation are needed in the churches today, almost as badly as in Luther's day. Learn from me, said Luther, how difficult a thing is to throw off errors which have been confirmed by the example of all the world and which through long habit have become second nature to us. Men were astonished that they had not earlier acknowledged truths that appeared so evident in Luther's mouth, and the historian D'Aubigne, who said his name before, D-apostrophe-A-U-B-I-G-N-E, 
and so with Durham's message, but it received great opposition also. Some abused the message as they do every message sent by God, going to the extreme of declaring that because the work of redemption was fully accomplished on the cross, it was of necessity finished in us also the moment that we believed. This was a great error and hindered the message and work considerably. Man always adds to the message God has given. This is Satan's cheap way to discredit and destroy it. Both Luther and Wesley had the same difficulties to contend with, and so has every God-given revival. Men are, sin- are, men are creatures of extremes. The message generally suffers more from its friends than its foes. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4 and 7. The truth can always be abused. Some even went so far as to fight the principle of holiness itself, pretending to justify themselves by Durham's message. But they had either misunderstood it or, what is more likely, seized a pretended opportunity to fight the principle that their own hearts refused to yield to. We had a wonderful year in Los Angeles in 1911. The battle was clearly between works and faith, between law and grace. Much of the old-time power and the glory of the Zeus and Mission days returned to us. I had much liberty and joy in Brother Durham's mission, especially in the beginning. God had prepared me beforehand for the message. I had been brought completely to the end of self-dependence. Works had no further place with me in meriting any phase of salvation. For we are by his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2 and 10. We were called to humility again so that the power of God might rest upon us. So determined was I to take no chances of self surviving in my life that I burned no less than 500 personal letters I had received in the early Azusa days from leading preachers and teachers all over the world inquiring anxiously about the revival that was then in our midst. Some of these inquirers were in very high positions officially. They had read my reports of the revival in various papers. I was afraid these letters might someday prove a temptation to me to imagine that I had been a person of some importance since many begged an interest in my prayers. I almost wish at times that I had kept these letters, as they would be of much interest now as historical evidence to the widespread influence of the revival. No doubt the Lord could have kept me humble without the sacrifice, but at the time I was determined to take no chances. We feared nothing more in those days than to seek our own glory or that the Pentecostal experience would become a matter of past history. In fact, we hoped and believed that the revival would last without cessation until Jesus should come. It doubtless would and should, if men would not fail God, that we drift back continually into the old ecclesiastical concept, forms, and ceremonies. Thus, history sadly repeats itself. Now, we must work up an annual revival. We go to church on Sundays, just like the nation's churches around about us. See Deuteronomy 17, 14. But in the beginning, it was not so. In the early Azusa streets, you could hardly keep the saints off their knees. Whenever two believers met, they invariably went to prayer. Today, we can hardly be dragged to prayer. Some make as much fuss about it as the old camel does in the east in kneeling to receive his load. He fusses and bites and groans before the driver can bring him down. I am glad I did not destroy my diary, however, or, or the articles I wrote all through those early Pentecostal days. I have preserved between five and six hundred separate printed articles, besides more than one hundred different tracts. From these I have been able to draw a large amount of most reliable information for the present book. It had I destroyed though these books would probably never have been written. The opposition against Brother Durham was tremendous, and he was finally tempted to strike back. This, I felt, was not the Spirit of Christ, though he had great provocation. Possibly few have been able to stand such a test successfully. 
I left the platform finally, not willing to stand for a spirit of retaliation. I felt I must keep clear of carnal strife and controversy. However, the Lord had wonderfully used dear brother Durham. He was sent by God to Los Angeles, and possibly his work was done. To have remained much longer might have destroyed his victory. For his word was coming to be almost law in the Pentecostal missions, even as far as the Atlantic coast. Too much power is unsafe for any one person. The paper he instituted in connection with his work began to take on the nature of a carnal controversy, fighting the old second work of grace theory. The Lord showed me he was about to stop the spirit. Brother Durham wrote the following observations on the work sometime before he died. They are of much vital importance, I feel, led to reproduce them as follows. A great crisis is now on. Men do not see the plan of God in the present Pentecostal movement. Such a complete revolution is necessary that it staggers them. They are unwilling to see that which they have labored so hard to build up thrown down. But before God's plans can be carried out, man's plans must be set aside. They fail to see that God, having set aside all the plans of man, is beginning to work after his own plan. He is revealing his real plan so that many that they will never consent to having the present work turned into a sect. God's people are simply not going to be led into the snare of human organization again. The Father has poured out His Spirit again so that Jesus may be glorified. All past movements have resulted in the promotion to positions of honor for one or more men. The present movement will honor and exalt Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit always exalts Jesus and His precious blood. As He is exalted and faithfully preached, God is restoring the old-time power, but it is not all restored yet. Not seeing the plan of God, men have not met the conditions and therefore have not received all that God has for them. Many have run ahead of God. And I'm on page 123, and I'm going to um, stop there even though the chapter goes into page 128. So I'll break it up into two different, at least two, maybe three days. We'll see. But you know, um, I'm not enjoying this part as much because it's like, it's just talented as it is. That men are not perfect. People are not perfect. And it's like, it's like if God is not first and foremost in our life, Jesus Christ being and Him crucified is what we preach and teach. Keep pointing people to the cross. That's our mission here at our Hazelwood USA, our podcast, The Eel. So um, that's what we need to do is just focus more on the Lord. Set aside every weight that does so easily beset us. Anything and everything. You know, when you point, when you point the finger at anybody, you've got, you've got three fingers point back at yourself. You point back at yourself. You know, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We always need to look at ourselves. Search me, Lord. Search me, Lord. Turn the light of heaven on my soul. If you find anything that should not be, take it out and strengthen me. I want to be right. I want to be whole. Got to be saved. And we want to spread the word of God as many people as possible. Whoever hears me on this podcast, Know that I am all about the Acts 2.38 message. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, we all like gifts. But God will not come into a dirty vessel. He will not come into a dirty temple. Our bodies are a temple of the Lord. 
He made us to praise Him. If you read in the Bible, if you know anything about the Bible, He created man in His image, and the whole purpose was for them to praise the Lord. When we start glorifying ourselves, we are fallen. We have fallen. We have fallen from His His purpose, and we don't want to be fallen from grace. We want the Lord to keep on making a way for us out of no way. And that's what he does. That's what he did for the Israelites. That's what he did time and time in the Bible. And that's what he's doing for you. He's making a way out of no way. He's making a way that you can come closer to him. Know him better. And it's right there in his word. My husband used to say, when you pray, you talk to God. When you read the Bible, he talks to you. And that's so true. Get the word of God in us. You know, people martyred. There is martyrs. There is people that died to get the Bible translated so we could have it. And how many times it just sits on our shelves? How many times it's on our phones in an audio form or even text where you can read it? Um, and we don't as much as we should. We don't understand sometimes what we're reading because we must pray. It says, they, to any man that lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And also study to show yourself a prayer before God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you keep reading the Bible, it explains itself. I found that out for myself many times. Saying, well, I don't understand the King James uh, Version. I don't understand the language, so I'm going to get another text. But I've seen over and over again that they say that different texts have removed references. They've removed some of the Bible. You don't have the full message if you get a lot of the different things. You need to make sure you have the whole loaf. Eat the whole loaf. Eat it. What God says. And no, you're not, you may not like everything that you read. You may not like it. But you say, Lord, what do I need to do to change so I will love your word? Thy law do I love and in I meditate day and night. We must meditate on it. Let it do its perfect work in us. Let him, he that begin a good work in you is able to complete it into the day until the day of redemption, until the day of Jesus, till he makes and molds us into what he wants us to be, until he calls us home, either through the way of the grave or in the rapture. You know, rapture is the calling away, calling up of the church. The dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to meet them in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. Now, I'm saying these verses off the top of my head, so I might not be getting them 100% right, but I'm telling you, this wonderful Azusa Street Revival is for us today. The Pentecost, what happened in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is for us today. Acts 1 and 8 says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Matthew 28, 19 says, To go into all the world. You know, we're to go into all the world. And that's what I'm trying to do via the internet. <laughs> I can't personally go into all the world globally, but on the internet I can. I'm going into your house wherever you live. It could be close by me or it could be across the globe. Only God knows who this message is for. And you could do the same thing too. You've got a family. You've got friends. You've got co-workers. You've got different people that you influence. Each one reach one or two or three. Cast out your nets. Let's fish. Let's fish, be fishers of men, all for the cause of Christ. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.
this is Sister Lisa coming to you from the Ill, the Edwin Elder Library, and this podcast is about book reviews and um, honoring God's servant, Edwin Elder. She was a missionary to Pakistan and Africa, and we have a library in her honor in our home. And over the years, my husband and I um, got books from Hazelwood, Missouri, uh, and Pentecostal Publishing House, and also other bookstores, Christian bookstores. And recently, I ordered this book by Frank Bartleman, Azusa Street, an eyewitness account to the birth of the Pentecostal revival of Amazon. We're on page 123, and this is part of chapter 5. So it'll be like the second reading of chapter 5. Shortly after God filled me, his spirit rested mightily upon me one morning, and he said to me, If you were only small enough, I could do anything with you. A great desire to be little, yea, to be nothing, came into my heart. But it has been oh so hard to keep low enough for him to really work through me. And he only really uses me when I am little in my own eyes and really humble at his feet. When I feel that I must do something, he always lets me fail. But when I stay at his feet and feel that I am nothing and that he is all, and so just trust him, he does his work in such a beautiful way that it is wonderful to me. God is not trying to build up something else or to do something for men that will make them great and mighty, but rather to bring all men to nothing and to do the work through the power of the Holy Ghost. The call of God to his people now is to humble themselves, to recognize their weakness and lack of power, to get down before him and wait till his power is restored. The great question is, will men see the plan of God and yield to it? Will men get down in humility at Jesus' feet and pray and wait till he restores his full Pentecostal power? Or will they continue to run ahead of him and fail in the end? Let God's people everywhere begin to seek in deep, true humility. Then he will reveal himself and his plan to them. One man with the real power of God upon him can do more than a thousand who go on their own account. Only those who are true and loyal to God in his present-day message will share in this great victory. The people who really humble themselves and stand the test, God will use to do his work. I'm going to insert something here. Um, I know years ago, about nine years ago, when I started doing the Hazelwood USA online ministry, um, I remember my first message was the emptying of oneself. The emptying of oneself. That's what God wants us to do. You know, we are nothing. It's only what he can do through us. And remember, when he does use us, he used a donkey. He used a burning bush. He used um, an axe head swimming. He used um, multiplying um, the loaves and fishes. He used the unusual things. And he can use us if we humble ourselves. If we um, empty ourselves. You know, because we are nothing. But And on the flip side, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. He can use us if we are willing vessels and always to the glory of God. I know when I was leaving um, a church where I was pianist at, when I was leaving one day, I said, Lord, why did you do, um, he prophesied through me and he also um, several times did object lessons, um, different things I wasn't intending to go through to um, talk about right here. But he did different things, and I'm like, Lord, why did you do those things if you weren't going to, um, you know, I thought the whole church was going to get converted over to Pentecost, um, get the experience, 
And he said he would, that he's going to get the glory. He's going to do it in his time and his way. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Who knows? Who knows what's been happening? Because I haven't heard. Um, nobody has. To, I, I think he's going to let me know when it happens. Just I, But I don't know. He might not. I might not to, know until I get to heaven. You know, when we get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. We're going to turn around and say, who are these? These are they who came out of great tribulation. Who knows? Who knows what sheets we may have in heaven just because of obedience. It's But he could use anybody. He could be using somebody out there now. That um, it could have been a seed that I planted that grew in them that God's using. Or I could have been a seed that God planted in, and used me out there that had... We all, some sow, some water, but God gives an increase. That's what I'm trying to get at. And my husband always said that in his study, in his study and that worship... Worship is dying to yourself. Uh, worship is really humbling yourself before God. Saying, God, I am nothing. You are everything. Giving him all the glory. That's true worship. And I think that's what Brother Bartleman's talking about in this book. I'm going to continue. I'm on page 124. The fact is, when a man gets to the place where he really loves obscurity, where he does not care to preach, and where he would rather sit in the back seat than on the platform, then God can lift him up and use him, and not very much before. The old upper room, 327 South Spring Street, was opened up again about this time under the leadership of Brother Warren Fisher, Brother Manley, and Brother Allen. I delivered a message there one Sunday and too received the baptism of the Spirit. God wonderfully anointed me. The presence of the Lord was very near. I had asked him for a witness, so now I shifted my ministry to the upper room mission. After I left Brother Durham's platform, he seemed to mistrust me. Perhaps he thought I would work against him. I spoke many times now at the upper room mission where the Lord greatly blessed me. Soon after this, Brother Durham went to Chicago to hold a convention where he was wonderfully used by God. It was in the winter, and he contracted a cold that led to his death soon after returning to Los Angeles. By this time, the Lord was speaking loudly to me about getting out into the field again. I felt strongly drawn to Europe. I had a, I had conviction of this when passing through Europe in 1910. The time had come, and the Lord began to touch hearts in a marked way on our behalf. We left Los Angeles and started to work our way across the continent once more, this time en route for Europe. The account of our two years' mission work in Europe was with labors in England, Scotland, Wales, Holland, Switzerland, France, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and old Russia itself, where I had to preach in secret, although almost under the Caesar's nose, was published in a separate booklet. We did not want to return to America so soon, but were obliged to in safety for to the family because of the war. Because the whole effort of the nations now become a, one of filling their people's heart with hate and murder. There seemed no place for the spirit of the gospel. You are expected to do all you can to hate, curse, or kill the enemy in wartime. Certainly not to love him. Let others do this, however they will. But as for me, the gospel is just the same in peace or in times of war. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8 Let me insert again. Uh, Yesterday, my daughter, Melissa, and I watched um, Brother Ken Gurley's uh, morning devotion. We watch it in the afternoon. He does a 7 a.m. Central Time morning devotion every day, every weekday. Um, But we watch it in the evening, about about 5 or 6 in the afternoon, evening time, whatever. Um, but anyway, yesterday he was talking about speak life. You know, speak life. Don't speak words of hate or war or um, ridicule or racism or 
um, political um, hatred or anything like that. Speak life. Keep promoting Jesus and life and encourage people. Find the good and, and lift it up. You know, lift, the, lift it up. Um, uh, we got to do that. And that goes along with this book. Okay, back to the book. In all my writings for at least 25 years, I have labored for the unity of the body of Christ. Everything I've written is full of the sentiment of John 17:21. Dr. Philip Schaff, the well-known, well-known scholar, has happily declared, The divisions of Christendom will finally be overturned for a deeper and richer harmony, of which Christ is the keynote. In Him and by Him, all problems of theology and history will be solved. In the best case, a human creed is only an approximate and relatively correct expression of revealed truth and may be improved by the progressive knowledge of the church. The editor of the Friend of Russia wrote, God's people can never get together on human creeds and disciplines. They are too narrow and changeable. We have a foundation that is broad enough to hold all. Christ himself is this foundation. In Christ, all God's people are one, irrespective of race, color, social standing, or creed. A certain preacher of standing in a prominent church outside the Pentecostal ranks while addressing the baptized saints not so long ago said, As we look upon the church divided upon the sect-ridden multitude, none of whom can see alike, how our tried souls cry out for that original love, and we will never win the world on any other plane. It was said of the early Christians by the heathen themselves, Behold how these Christians love one another. While we are breaking up into sects, creeds, isms, and doctrines, our love is dying. Our churches will be empty and our people lost. Your beautiful Pentecostal work so full of promise where God has designed to come in and fill souls and wonderfully baptize them in the Holy Spirit is broken and peeled and ruined for lack of love. Someone has recently written as follows. It is a common thing to read in the daily paper such words as these. Only union men need apply. And it is becoming a common thing to read in church papers. Affiliating brethren are invited. What is the difference? No difference except one is a secular union, the other is a religious union. Every flesh division or party in the church gives the world a contradiction as to the oneness of the body of Christ and the truthfulness of the gospel. Multitudes are bowing down and burning incense to a doctrine rather than Christ. The many sects in Christendom are, to say the least, evidence to the world that Christians cannot get along together. Written creeds only serve to publish the fact that we cannot understand the Word of God alike and get together on it. Is the Word of God then so hard to understand? They who establish a fixed creed bar a fixed creed bar the way to further progress. It is said of the mighty evangelist Charles G. Finley Finney that he forged the, his theology on the anvil of prayer in his own heart. Wow, I'm gonna say that again. Forged his theology on the anvil of prayer in his own heart. He was not bound by the systems of his day. The Spirit is laboring for the unity of believers today for the one body so that the prayer of Jesus may be answered, that they all may be one, that the world may believe. John 17, 21. But the saints are ever too ready to serve a system or a party to contend for religious, selfish party interest. God's peoples are shut up in denominational coops. C-O-O-P-S. Error always leads to militant exclusion. Truth evermore stoops to wash the saints' feet. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
We should be as one family, which we are, at home in God's house everywhere. We belong to the whole body of Christ, both in heaven and on earth. God's church is one. It is a terrible thing to go about dismembering the body of Christ. How foolish and wicked the petty differences between Christians will appear in the light of eternity. Christ is the issue, not some doctrine about him. The gospel leads to him. It exalts Christ, not some particular doctrine. To know Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of the Christian faith and practice. That same word again, D-A-U-B-I-G-N-E. Daban, the historian said, The church was in the beginning a community of brethren, guided by a few of the brethren. One is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Matthew 23, 8. We have too many who are a leadership spirit. These divide the body, separate the saints. Now, however, we are coming around the circle from the early church's fall back to the primitive love and unity in the one body of Christ. This is doubtless the church for which Christ is coming, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ephesians 5.27 And that does, that helps us to conclude chapter 5. So to next time we'll start chapter 6. But before I close off here, I wanted to say um, that yesterday I teach music lessons here in my home and one of my students um, has a song called Jesus name above all names I've given it to him for quite a while he's been playing it and um, every once in a while I have him pull it back out and and review it and um, just he's getting better and better on his playing anyway but as he's playing or right before he get ready to play that song I said um, I said we had a minister um, go to um, uh, he was uh, in Jerusalem and he went to a synagogue and um, in there, there was a rabbi that was giving him a tour of the place, and um, he noticed, um, this minister noticed that this wall had all these tiles on it, and there's all these different writings on it, and he asked, he says, what is this? And the rabbi said, well, those are names of God, and there was like a whole bunch of them, and at the very, very top, there was a blank, there was like a tile with nothing written on it, and um, this minister said, well, what's, what's up there, um, he said, oh, we believe that there's one more name of God, but we don't know what it is yet. And he's like, oh, we know. Jesus is the name above all names. There's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. His name is exalted. Jesus is the name, the saving name. There is no other name. Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You know, this is the pro- uh, promise. Jesus said he would send a comforter in his name. I must go away. I must needs go away. You know, he must. It is expedient that he go away, that he could send the comforter, and that's the Holy Ghost. That's what Acts 2.38 is talking about. That is Pentecost. That's what this is all about. And my husband and I, when we started this Hazelwood USA, I had this vision this thought I had this thought of billboards being around the city and it's a enter any denomination exit with the apostolic experience as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost Acts 2.38 you know enter any denomination it's not about our denominations it's not about our doctrine it's about his doctrine it's about this Pentecostal experience this quickening spirit that's going to get us to heaven and yes we must love one another will know that we are his if we have love for one another. God bless you. I love you. 
spread this joy. God bless you. Keep pointing others to the cross. Jesus is coming soon. Bye-bye.